Okay, we're recording. Hello. Hi, listeners. Hi, 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 listeners. Guess who it is? I bet you can't guess. It's us. It's your favorite little... Scamps. (laughs) We're just a couple of scamps. Yeah, we're just like the little rascals running around. I don't know. Here for your pleasure. (laughs) Or our own. I don't know. Definitely for your entertainment. uh, (laughs) Because... This is just what we do in our free time. Yeah, uh, hi, it's it's me, Summer. And I'm Danny. And uh, we're back, and we're so happy to be here with you. We really are. We hope uh, you're all doing well. How are you? Are you how talking are, to the listeners? I was talking to the listeners, but then I was like, let's pivot to Danny. Danny, how are you? Um, glad that I'm here and the listeners aren't, because now I get to talk. Well, you, no, that just... Yeah, please. No, we love to talk? hear you talk. Yeah, like, I, I was thinking, like... Man, it's it's a good thing that you wanted to hear my answer instead of the listeners, because like the listeners, you would be... be waiting for a while. But also, uh, I was trying to like make it into a more concise joke, and uh, <laughs> it didn't land very my well. Favorite, it was funnier in my favorite, my head. favorite jokes are the ones that you have to explain extensively. They're so fun. Those are the only kind that I tell. <laughs> um, I'm realizing that the sun is very bright behind you right now, Danny, coming oh. through the window, and I might need to put on a pair of shades. I have. What some, do you? Think? I have the sunglasses I found on the ground. Oh my god, they're so cute. Oh my god, that's and right. I haven't we were, them. They're like too small for my face. We okay. were gonna drop them off at Lost and Found, but then we never got in because the line was so long. And there were severe warning storms, yeah. severe weather storms, severe, storm severe weather. Wow, that's a hard one for me. Severe storm warning. Yeah, that's it. Um, I have my purse right here, and I'm gonna grab my sunglasses. Oh, okay. But what were you gonna say, Danny? I was gonna say they're too small for my face, so you can have them if you want. Can I try them on? Yes, oh of course. God. One sec. Okay, Danny's getting those. Meanwhile, I'm pulling my very scratched up heart-shaped rainbow glasses from my purse. Those are fantastic. I can't have nice things because they all go to the bottom of my purse and inevitably get like smooshed up with all of the other weird things in my purse. It's fantastic. How it's do like, they look on me? Those are adorable. Do they look cute on me? Yeah. I want to know. Well, there's they're, enough mirrors in my apartment. That's you true, can check it out. But that requires me standing up. They they feel nice. They're really but cute. But I think for now I'm going to put these ones on, the rainbow ones cuz they like kind of like lend a really pretty purpley hue to all things it gives everything bisexual lighting oh like true. they're purple on purple top and, and then pink. blue uh, like pink Blue-ish on the bottom pink. yeah yeah um okay we're setting the mood for you folks if you lost a pair of sunglasses <gasps> at salt lake city pride dm us i guess uh so that we can laugh in your face at how we're not giving your sunglasses like, back they look cuter on me bitches exactly. just kidding we'll give them back to you yeah what brand are they are they nice i don't know they are nice they're like well built uh, it's we're like almost three minutes in. Sorry, you, <laughs> like, you talking love about it. You love no, it. Yeah. Um. Anyway, well, yeah. So we're here. How um, are you, Summer? Oh, I'm great. <laughs> I'm doing well. Um. Not much to report on my end, other than just like regrounding myself after certain events and <laughs> reminding myself that. Um, my existence is worthy yes. and valuable, and that's always a thing we should be doing, exactly. is taking a minute to, like, celebrate ourselves and give so- ourselves credit for the things that we don't usually. And Summer, <laughs> I'm just going to say, you are worth celebrating. Aww. 
I love you. Thanks, Danny. I mm. love you too. <laughs> we uh, don't hang out enough anymore. Like I feel yeah. like we used to hang out every single day, <laughs> or, yeah, or, or like at least three times or four a times week. a week. Yeah. And now it's like I see you maybe once a week. I know, which is I like I I agree because we kind of established the standard of like spending such quality time together. And a mm. lot of this when I was when I was door dashing a lot. And Danny was the best because they would just like passenger prince it up <laughs> in the passenger seat with me and like always with the snacks. Listen, and the, yeah, yeah, snacks and podcasts and like going on weird adventures to um, creepy, really scary <laughs> neighborhoods that were out to kill lesbians. It felt like anyway. Yeah, um, it felt really homophobic up in this piece. It did. It's hard to describe. You had to be there. Um, <laughs> but you know, it's funny because like. I and not to um, discredit your feelings because they're valid, but like a lot of my friends, if you're listeners, know that you maybe see me once a month, maybe once every couple months. So it's like just know, not that I'm forming a, a hierarchy of my friendships here, but it's like you know. But if you were, be grateful that you see me once a week. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, um, yeah. I just like Danny and I've talked about this. With my age or with my experience, I like to say, Mm -hmm. I learn things about myself and I learn that I'm changing a little bit and I'm not as much of an extrovert as I used to be. And Danny and I were also talking about checking in with ourselves and trying to see what our needs are like on a fairly, um, you know, regular basis. Regular basis. Thank you. That's the word. And that's one thing for me is like when we tried to go to Pride and like, the night before I did, we, we you were there. We went yeah. to the opening night concert and like that whole weekend just really took it out of me. And it took me like a full week to recover from that. <laughs> just not even because like I was excessively inebriated. It was just like me being there was a lot of kind of. Happening. Yeah. So yeah. anywho, point is, um, I'm super happy to be hanging out with you now, Danny. Me too. And we're going to do the thing that we love to do. We're going to talk about a movie that. Makes me feel a lot of things. I I love this movie. I'm I'm really excited to talk about it. Me too. So uh, the treat for the day is we are going to be talking about Guillermo. Wow, I can't pronounce his name. Guillermo. Guillermo. I'm so white. You I'm can just sorry. say Guillermo. You don't have to. But Guillermo, it's e- like, when I try to say Guillermo, I still like trip. I can't roll my R's. But I still trip up on try, it. Try saying Guillermo. Guillermo like, del with Toro. A D Guillermo instead of the R. Guillermo del Toro. Yeah, that's it. Guillermo del Toro. Um, it is his 2006 film, Pan's Labyrinth. Oh my God. And so good. honestly, a lot of critics say that this is his like finest piece of work. And I don't, I don't know that I want to like rate it in that way because his whole oeuvre is like definitely worth note. But I do love this movie yeah. and it stands up like yeah. so hard. <laughs> I haven't seen enough of his stuff to like have an opinion on that, but I like it is an absolute masterpiece. It is such like a a perfect encapsulation of him as a storyteller. Yeah, aesthetically, I think. Like, yeah. like as far thematically. Yeah, like he leans into so many things that like he seems to have a very specific touch for, you mm-hmm. know, like even if this isn't like his most like his best work which we're not gonna argue because i don't know that's not how art works yeah that's not how art works this does seem to be the one that only he could have made absolutely like only he speaks the very specific kind of language 
that is spoken in this movie. And I'm not talking about Spanish. I'm talking about this sort of magical, like bringing fairy tales into this world in such like a grounded and, and personal way. Um, it, it's something you see very rarely. Like I can only think of a few other creators who have that ability and none of them hit, have this like hit on this specific tone. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I yeah couldn't agree more. Um, Danny, what is your relationship oh, with actually, this film? Okay, so this is, um, I'm a fake film guy, again. Uh, I had not seen this movie until yesterday, uh, all the way through. I had wanted to watch it for many years. I knew that I loved Guillermo del Toro, but, like, I had never seen it. I had never prioritized it. No judgment. And also, I... I fell asleep twice while trying to watch this, like at different times this week. I like tried to watch it and then didn't, and tried to watch it and then didn't. Uh, not or, because like, it, tried... it's not um, attention capturing. Yeah, no, I just have been but... sleeping more. Sorry, yeah. Uh, no, which we love. Remember we a long love. time ago? Have you been a listener from the start, little old you? Yeah. Our, oh my god, our the very first... first episode, the Howl's Moving Castle episode. I remember we Is talked that about. When I said I was trying to. Sleep yeah, more? that you that had a good. goal to like sleep or prior to sleep so Danny's doing it yay Um, we follow through so yeah it it makes it a lot more difficult to like do productive things because I used to be way productive at night and now I'm just like unconscious for eight hours it's fucking ridiculous (laughs) Um, yeah but I wish I didn't love sleep so much anyway (laughs) but anyway uh so yeah I'd never seen this movie and I watched it and it was lovely and it blew me away I don't know I I think and we're going to talk about this a lot more but like what I expected from this movie was not what I got tell me like more about that like what were your like from what kind of like cultural osmosis because this is definitely an iconic like seminal film I think Mm -hmm. that really shook um, the whole world really like Mm -hmm. everywhere people received it in that way um, and so there is a certain, you know, like, yeah, expectation that you would form, especially knowing, like, kind of who Del Toro is in mm-hmm. a vague sense. Um, anyway, yeah. What, what, what did you expect going into it? I, okay, so I, somewhere in the back of my head, I knew it was in Spanish. That's, like, kind of all I knew. Okay. Like, I didn't know anything about the setting. I knew that there was a fawn played by Doug Jones uh-huh. and I had seen the like pale man Oof. stuff but I didn't yeah. know the context for yeah. it I think I was getting a lot of stuff mixed in with like the David Bowie labyrinth uh, um, oh, like not not stuff but interesting. like uh, like images because I've seen that labyrinth so many times and like I knew that this was You're very kind of different all, not conflating like, the two but yeah, like maybe I mean, like, like yeah okay like picture a labyrinth in your head okay I'm picturing a labyrinth in yeah. my head um, and yeah, I didn't. I think I was expecting more of a children's story, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't Less expect, of a horror? Yeah, I didn't expect the darkness and the violence. I didn't expect the ending. Um, oh my God. I forgot about the ending, to yeah. be honest. I think I like. And like they show uh, the ending at the, at beginning, the beginning, and I, I still forgot. I know. Um, yeah, well, it's, yeah, it's not super clear what's happening. Yeah. Yeah, and okay. so like I, That's fascinating. I had no idea how like interwoven that magic was mm-hmm. in through the movie. Like I thought it was either a fantasy or like something in someone's head, and I didn't know that it was the same thing. Mm. Um, and yeah, I, I it was a different journey than I expected. I I don't know how concrete my expectations were going mm-hmm. in, but I know that it like really 
eclipsed those. Mm. Um, yeah, but uh, Summer, you've you've seen this movie before, though. What I has am. your experience been with this movie? Yeah, so I have only seen it once before, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, when it came out in 2006, let's see, I was like a sophomore in high school, and this was pre-me watching rated R films. Um, so I didn't watch it until probably like 2015, maybe. Um, and... I remember being riveted by it and blown away. Um, But I only saw it the one time. Mm -hmm. And by the time I watched it again, um, it just, like, blew me even further out of the water. I, like I said, I forgot the ending. Like, I mean, obviously spoilers, you all know. We don't ever even say spoilers, but I think at this point, you know... Yeah, I mean, like, it's, we, it's we do attempt... It's a film review analysis. <laughs> yeah, like, we attempt... This isn't a pitch for a movie. We're analyzing all the different parts of it, including the ending, so... Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I I think that I... I didn't realize... I, don't, I didn't remember what a tragedy it was. I knew it was a kind of fucked-up fairy tale mm-hmm. um, set in this, like, fascist, you know, post-Spanish Civil War time, but... But I didn't remember, like, just how fucked up it was. Um, And, yeah, how beautifully these, like, uh, myths, like you said, intertwined with that reality. And, yeah, I love it. I love Guillermo del Toro. Mm -hmm. Um, He, kind of like you said, I'm not, not, like, a a completionist of del Toro's work. I don't think I've seen everything. Mm -hmm. Um, The first film of his I saw was Devil's Backbone. Devil's Backbone um, was his second film. His first film was Kronos. And this film, Pan's Labyrinth, uh, Del Toro has said is like a thematic sequel to Devil's Backbone. Um, Anyway, I've seen that. I saw Shape of Water. I saw the new Pinocchio, which I loved. Um, Saw Kronos. I never saw Hellboy, which I need to see. Anyway, I, I always have just like been completely enchanted by him as a person mm-hmm. i was telling you earlier danny like anytime you watch any interview with del toro i dare you to not just be like smitten by his charm and just comfy like genuine comforting persona like yeah. he's just such a fucking sweetie pie who's so he's real like someone who like passionate yeah <sighs> he feels like someone from another time like yeah. he he's the kind of man who would like travel and and people would like invite him into their home and he would be like bring good luck and good vibes you know like he seems like that kind of person um i so okay this is embarrassing but literally the only other del toro movie i've seen is pacific rim amazing that's right how could i forget that but like we will talk about pacific rim at some point and like we've already how that movie specifically played into me coming out as non-binary hell yeah uh because i don't know something about that movie has nb swag i i I can't say but um i also have seen him in another another context which is it's always sunny in philadelphia we bond. Okay, so summer. Oh, summer del Toro's and he's in that. Okay, so summer I'm sorry, and I bonded what? over. Yeah. Uh, it's always sunny when we were first hanging out, and like we would watch it as we were going to sleep. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you know how Charlie Day was in Pacific Rim, right? Yes. So he and Del Toro became friends during that. Okay. And he, Charlie invited Del Toro to be on It's Always Sunny, and he plays Pappy McPoyle. 
What? What the fuck? How? What season is this in? He's I don't in, think. He's in like, I'm sure I would remember if it's I saw the one, Del Toro. Um, and... So I, he's in two episodes. One of them is the one where Liam gets married to Maureen. I have seen that. Yeah. For sure. He's, and like. Does he have like speaking lines? K- kind of. He's like wandering around the wedding and, and oh like God, pretending doom. It's that. fantastic. You have to rewatch it. <laughs> And then the I love other that one they became friends. Of course they would. Yeah. And then the other one was uh, the other one was the the trial one where <gasps> like they were talking about like who where stabbed his, Liam or where who his ate his uncle eye or whatever. Has the the hands. <laughs> oh, that lawyer's got really good hands. <laughs> Don't look at my hands. That oh my one. I I miss like mid season. Like it's always sunny. Like I I haven't loved the last like three or four seasons but like seasons eight through 11 like oh i fucking Peak, love them. it's always they're sunny. so good um but yeah so so that's where that's one of the main contexts that i've seen del there toro is no in is just in like that. in that a is... ton of makeup wandering around a cursed zombie wedding screaming at people it's fantastic astounding <laughs> um, oh my god well that's wonderful see listen del toro is like that's what i mean by him being down to earth is he's not above he's not this pretentious yeah. auteur he'll just like above. come hang out with a buddy and yeah. like be in his show some silly goofy thing oh, i love it oh my god yeah um cool well, so i guess yeah uh, that's your background with del toro yeah i'm excited because well and we can decide if we want to include this in this episode but my brother there's a little anecdote that i wanted to talk about with my brother hank um, who had a run-in that makes it sound ominous, but it was Ooh. pleasant with Del Toro. Um, and I was like texting my brother, and I was like, "Hank, quick, remind me of what happened, because if I talk about it, I want to make sure I'm telling the truth." And he's like, "Oh yes, I could record a full thing for you." And I was like, "Oh, fuck it, yeah, come, come be a guest." So, yeah. spoiler, maybe, hopefully, he will come on and talk about his encounter with Del Toro, and maybe talk about another. Yeah, maybe we could cover another Del Toro Um, film. But needless to say, he is just as sweet and wonderful in person. That's all I'll say about that. Um, But yeah, I feel like now's as good as time as as any to kind of dive into a little bit of background about the film. Yeah, um, totally. About Del Toro. Um, Do you have anything you want to say about like your background or anything before we kind of jump into that, Danny? No, I'm I'm down to just like listen to what you have. I know that you watched a lot of interviews and did a lot of background research on this so i'm excited to just like soak it all in and learn more about this guy and this movie sit back and relax and enjoy the adhd ride that i'm about to take you on please info dump mommy (laughs) um i couldn't tell if you said on me or mommy mommy (laughs) okay good i kind of hoped you said mommy but i was like wait but did he say on me or mommy info info dump on me like that's not as weird as it sounds i don't know that, but that's not what i said mommy. it was more of like a crunchitize <laughs> okay. me captain like info no dump me i mommy. get it i just didn't want to like assume <laughs> um okay so uh yeah i was telling danny earlier like i have this tendency to go down these rabbit holes and watch a shit ton of interviews and then i'm not always the best at like citing things like notes that i take so i'm gonna do my best to walk you through a couple of these things and um yeah so just like every time every time you watch like a new interview or read a new article just like text me the link and i'll just put it in the show notes and the readers and the listeners can figure it out we should start doing that yeah that's a great idea okay so yeah i kind of talked about um who del toro is as a person 
not really. So we'll get into that a little more. Um, so he's from Mexico. One thing that I love about his rise to being an auteur mm -hmm. is that he, yeah, he grew up in Mexico. Um, he was best friends with Alfonso Cuaron. They met when they were like 13 or 14. And those two have remained thick as thieves through the decades. I love watching creators like like grow and like become successful and still be like really good buddies it's so it's sweet so and like the thing that i love about del toro is he totally takes his friends with him and that's the dream right yeah like it's not so much writing on someone's coattails as like just elevating the people around you that you've chosen to surround yourself with because yeah. you know that they have something important to say. Yeah, that's like the dream yeah, is to literally. like be successful but not be like lonely at the top, yeah. right? Like pull as many people Still, up as you can. Yes, and keep your values intact yeah. and like you need your friends there to remind you of that. And I exactly. think they do that with each other. Oh, I love that. Um, but in your Ritu, so... Um, Alejandro Iñárritu, who's another like renowned filmmaker, he, the three of them are best friends now. I can't, I don't know exactly when Iñárritu came into the picture, but um, there's a ton of panels with the three of them, and I just think it's like fucking awesome that they're all from Mexico and they all had this like break in the Hollywood industry and have been very choosy with the projects that they work on because they have integrity <laughs> and it's so it's fucking rare refreshing yeah. it is so um yeah so like there was this one interview I was watching where um it was about Pan's Labyrinth and it was like about to come out and the interviewer was like oh so Del Toro like Alfonso Cuaron has an, a movie coming out the same day as Pan's Labyrinth. Like, are you guys feeling competitive? Are you at odds about this? And he just kind of laughed and he was like, he's my best friend. And he's like, Cuaron produced Pan's Labyrinth and they're very different movies. He's like, Children of Men is going to be released in over 2,000 the theaters mm -hmm. and I'm releasing... Pan's Labyrinth to limited theaters. Like, it's like, we're just, no, like, it's not. It's a very it different, like, market we're going exactly. for. Exactly. Um, but we yeah, should definitely so, cover Children of Men sometime. Uh, I was thinking that it's too. It's been forever since I've seen that movie. It's and I read so the book. Bad. I had, okay. Yeah. Never Ooh. Mind. I, I, is the book good? Did you like I it? I liked it. There's some very interesting stuff I would love to like, yeah, I would love to discuss some of the themes and, and things discussed in the book. Totally. Um, but anyway, but back yeah, to this. So sorry. just like, I don't know why I'm so obsessed with giving you so much background on like Del Toro's character, but it's just very it. endearing to me. And actually, to defend myself, um, no one's asking me to do that except for myself. But here <laughs> I, I know, go. I was about to be like, <laughs> no, like, please do. I think that this, yeah. <laughs> this is how my mind works is I, ch I challenge and question myself and then I defend my own stance. I love that um, for you. So, uh, yeah, like literally all of these little tidbits about his character and these qualities that he has are reflected in his work. Mm -hmm. And and so they will actually tie into some of the themes. Um, but he talked about how uh, he has worked with the cinematographer who is Guillermo um, Navarro mm -hmm. uh, since the beginning. So his very first film ever, Kronos, um, his cinematographer was Guillermo Navarro. Um, and they just, he's also from Mexico. And like, I just love seeing him give work to and hire behind the scenes and in front of the cameras, like to non, you know, white, just like American, like Hollywood mm -hmm. industry people. Like, it's really awesome to see. Um, and we need more of that and telling stories that are like outside of our like egocentric view. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So that's really cool. Another interesting tidbit is that uh, they were filming in Spain. And at the time, um, there was a huge drought where they were filming. And there had also been a massive wildfire. And so because of that, there was a ban on fire. So they were not allowed to have any, like, fire at all on set. Um, Not even, like, any sort of spark or anything. So, like, everything was done in post as far as, like, the gunfire even. Like, everything was had to be fixed in post. Um, So, yeah, so they... Uh, all of the scenes that you see with like the the war scenes, you know, them like blowing up each other's property and, and whatnot, all of that was actually, um, it was so cool the way they did it, is they had steam, they would like blow steam out, and then they would backlight the steam, and they would use that for the explosions, which created this really whimsical, like fantastical pause that is, that is so cool i am so sorry my phone i'm my computer keeps dinging because someone's spamming the group chat but like i hey, forgot to turn off uh, i forgot you. to turn off do not disturb so sorry flower shout and- out to our friends flower and sage we love you <laughs> we're here we're here we just too can't bad this respond isn't, right now too bad this isn't a live recording or yeah. you would know um, okay, so we uh we're on do not disturb now yeah sorry about that so um, yeah, so really cool. And and here's something. Okay, actually, okay, the lighting. Okay, so the steam lit, um, amazing explosions, all of that really ties into how Guillermo del Toro approaches his filmmaking process and also life. And so what we're going to do, I think that's pretty much all I want to cover right now. Yeah. Um, we've been talking for a long time, yeah. so we're going to take a little hydration break. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we come back, we'll go into more about who del Toro is, how that affects this film and the story we're about to dive into mm-hmm. um, and everything that it says about everything yeah about magic yeah okay Okay. we'll be back bye listen close you'll hear it in the rustle of the leaves and the whisper of the wind in the falling snow and drifting clouds the song of the road The story of the people of this world. A soaring eagle, a scampering mouse, and the myths that surround them. They traveled through snow-dappled fields and across rolling oceans. To raucous festivals and somber forests. Not every journey needs a destination. Sometimes it's enough to wander and roam. Wander and Roam, an improvised pastoral story, releases Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Yes. So we left off talking about how there was this fire ban and how because of it, they had to use some ingenuity to create the effects that they wanted. One other last tidbit before I get into the next part that I just remembered. Oh, my God, it's so good. So Del Toro decided on the last day of shooting when the firemen stepped away to go get a coffee Mm -hmm. at a coffee shop, he said, fuck it. They're not here. Let's blow some shit up. And it's the last day and of shooting, so, so we may they as well. blew up a trunk with using like real effects, special effects, um, 
because yeah he was just like let's do it and hearing del toro say like fuck it let's blow a trunk up light or like on in an interview there's just something about that that's like gives me life you know? i love that it would like i love the kind of person who says like fuck it let's just blow something up like that's yes. such a great way to enjoy life like to approach life hell yeah um, um but yeah one thing that i really love about del toro again is that he has spoken to great lengths about how when he's on set, inevitably things go wrong. Mm-hmm. And if you've ever been on set, listener, <laughs> you know or even if you've right. lived, <laughs> things never go as you plan, no matter how prepared you are, especially on a film set, mm-hmm. no matter how thorough you are with every step of the production plan, things are going to fall apart and go wrong. Mm-hmm. And I remember watching uh, The Shape of Water and listening to some interviews with Del Toro about that and him talking about how some of their biggest action scenes completely like went awry. Wow. And because of that, he was able to come up with something even better. The solutions provided the path to which the film needed to take. Mm-hmm. Um, and he talks about that with Pan's Labyrinth as well. He talks about how... Whenever obstacles arise, the solution that he finds is even more magical and amazing than he had planned. I love that. And what a philosophy to have. I, you've probably heard me say this a lot, but like my approach to life is to just assume that the universe is conspiring in my favor, right? That like, everything wants me to win and I just have to like step into it I remember you saying that like early on when we first met and I was like hell yeah and so like I I feel like this is a very similar thing like he he approaches it as like whatever happens things will get better and we'll be able to make it better I think that that is a very like both optimistic and empowering thing because Mm -hmm. it gives him the opportunity to not just be like oh well we have to fix this we have to fix this but instead look for opportunities not just to make a better movie, but to become a better filmmaker Absolutely. and to be a better problem solver. Mm-hmm. And that kind of like, that's really what creates a m- magic touch is like being able to roll with it and, and create something new, even under adverse circumstances. And like with the confidence that it's all going to end up even better. Right. And so I, I think that like the way that he uh, approaches that just like, as his internal philosophy it it works on so many different levels for him yes and it totally shines through in his work yeah and it shines through in his characters too which we're gonna get into now yeah um (laughs) so yeah i mean if you haven't seen pan's labyrinth um something we actually usually don't preface our episodes with is like it's probably best if you've seen the film. Um, we don't do a recap, as you've noticed, mm-hmm. like a thorough recap. We don't do like a beat for beat or anything like that. Um, and we're way too ADHD to like go straight through and, and follow along some sort of narrative fucking path. It ain't, no. it ain't us, yeah. folks, if you haven't figured that out by now. No, we're zipping um, around. But yeah, I mean, uh, do you want to give us like a little like high level kind of overview? Yeah, I guess like... Um, Basically, the story is about Ophelia, who is an 11-year-old girl living in fascist Spain in the 40s. Yeah, 1944. So five years after the Civil War. Or four years. Four or five years. I can't remember exactly when it ended. Yeah. Um, And and this story is a fairy tale built around Ophelia. And so she 
we open on her traveling to a new home with her mom who is heavily pregnant and this new home that she's going to is the home of her wicked stepfather who is a fucking fascist fascist yeah captain captain what is his name Vidal. Vidal. yeah so she is brought into this new place this new home where she obviously like doesn't feel comfortable it's obvious she does not like her new stepfather but then also she steps into another new world of the labyrinth and their yeah, she, she's, she's presented with this information yeah. from this other world that mm-hmm. she is the princess of the other underworld. Yeah, so there's a she's the princess of the underworld, and she and has be been like reunited, reborn. Yeah, and, in yeah. order to go back to retrieve her her rightful throne, mm-hmm. she has to prove that she is in fact the princess. And yeah, she has to complete has these to, tasks. Yeah, she has to complete these and she three meets, tasks that are, are given to her by a fawn mm-hmm. played, played by, by the Jones. fantastic Doug and Jones. And by the way, Ophelia is played by Ivana Baquero, who mm-hmm. is sensational. Yeah. This was her Dude. second role. She was in one like micro-budget horror film before mm-hmm. this as a kid, and this was like her first major role. She's and so cool. Holy smokes. And appar- apparently um, Del Toro wanted like an eight or nine year old, yeah. but then when Ivana auditioned he like rewrote it so that she like she could play Ophelia I read um, that too which yeah I love. it works so yeah. well did, did you know she is like two weeks younger than me like literally Whoa. we're the same age that's so wild I know it's kind of crazy I'm like wow what was I doing in 2006 damn um but yeah so Ophelia is approached by this fawn in the labyrinth um and he says that he will that there are tasks that she has to complete in order to um like take her throne right and then at the same time she is introduced to the mill where the captain and his like garrison are staying and there are like guerrillas in not guerrillas like guerrillas uh in the A resistance yeah, yeah. Uh, an anti-fascist resistance um in the woods around them and so we, we follow both of these stories, like both Ophelia as she is dealing with the fantasy and the magic that's like in her world. She meets fairies. Uh, at, magical toad. <laughs> yeah, I love the magical toad. But then also her mom uh, gets very sick um, when she's like she's pregnant. And she gets very sick. Uh, Ophelia is able to ask the fawn for help and he gives her like magical assistance to help her mom feel better like it's which works it it does it's beautiful yeah and unfortunately Ophelia messes up in the second second task yes Mm -hmm. in the second task um and things start to go wrong there and then things spiral in like the quote-unquote real world where the war is happening and the fascists um yeah so I don't want to go into like all the details but that's that's... kind of the structure we follow is like both this story of a girl in an oppressive state in an oppressive household with a mom in very poor health and the story of a girl who is trying to yeah like regain her throne as princess Mm -hmm. she has this like such a great way of like interacting with the magic she never questions it it's just beautiful Mm -hmm. um yeah Thank you. Yeah. No, that was perfect. Um, yeah, I think like, I guess to kind of start, um, I don't, it's hard to know where to start because there's mm-hmm. so much. 
Um, but I love when we first meet Ophelia, we see right away that she is not afraid to speak up mm-hmm. and to speak her truth. And she's quite defiant mm-hmm. in her own way. Um, when they are in the carriage traveling to Captain Vidal's uh, mill, uh, her mother is expressing that you have no idea how much he's done for us. They re- they reference her father's death, so Ophelia's father's death. Um, and the mother says, I want you to call the captain father. I want you to do that. You don't understand how mm-hmm. much he's done for you. And she is defiant. She yeah. says, he's not my father. My father was a tailor. Yeah. And Ophelia's mother says, it's just a word, Ophelia. It's just a word. And right away, we're introduced to my favorite and I think the most um, dominant theme in the story, which is disobedience, mm-hmm. which is the first thing that really unites these two parallel worlds of mm-hmm. the fantasy world and this reality world of um fascist ruled spain mm-hmm. <laughs> and the importance of saying no mm-hmm. and having a more rooted moral compass um to stand up to these fascists yeah um and i think that it's like it's cool that like it's it's <sighs> I don't want to say it's subtle necessarily, but he immediately introduces this theme in a way that just continues to grow mm-hmm. and like evolve from there. Yeah. And like, I, I don't know if I have anything to add. That's like such a, that's just a really good point. No. Oh, yeah. Um, that's okay. Um, yeah. I, I think that like from, and from the very beginning, she's not just like, it's not about disobedience itself, right? It's not about like it's not an unalloyed good to say no. Yeah, it's not being but, a contrarian exactly. for the sake of being a contrarian. But it's about knowing what you believe and knowing what's real. Mm-hmm. And um Ophelia is shown to do that quite a bit too. She's very like aware of the world around her. Um kind of like the I don't know if it's the inciting incident of the magic. It it does seem that way. She like finds a little rock on mm-hmm. the ground. And she, like, picks it up and puts it back in its place, like, in the eye of a statue, essentially. And, like, there aren't very many people who would, like, notice that and put it back in its place. Yeah, or even, like, believe or that aware. There is. Yeah. yeah. And so she has this, like, awareness and sort of, like, I, I think that's the best way to say it, um, of, like, the world around her and the things that she, like, she sees things very well. It's, um, like, it's almost like... A type of clairvoyance almost. Yeah, it's like a second sight. And I think, and the thing is, like, the fact that Del Toro ended up kind of catering this to work around this actress that he found who's a little Mm. bit older, I think it's actually perfect because she's just on the cusp of, like, um, maturing and, Mm -hmm. like, adulthood. And this is definitely, in a way, a coming of age as well because she still has this, like, extreme sense of innocence Mm -hmm while still having a deviant side. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think, like, you know, so many stories root themselves in uh, this sense of, like, oh, this loss of innocence, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I think, like, he kind of subverts that because it's, like, she doesn't... Yes, she does mess up, like, she, like you said, a couple mm-hmm. of times, especially in the second task, but, like... She never actually goes through a full loss of innocence. Yeah. 
Um, I don't know where I'm going with that. But I, just I think a thought that I like <laughs> I think that sort of in the tradition of a good fairy tale, like the theme is innocence, but it's not loss of innocence; it's triumph of innocence. Mm. Like examining what's good about innocence and not just like mourning its loss, but understanding like what parts of innocence you can hold on to right because like she sees some really bad things she goes through some really really bad stuff and so in another like storytelling setting she might become jaded she might like quote learn to grow up unquote but in this it's it's less about that and more about how her innocence and how her understanding and belief in magic serves her and serves the world around her it's like it's almost like because she has access to Mm -hmm. this fantasy world it it allows her to preserve that exactly innocence yeah and it it reminds me of some other fairy tales right so like i don't know like a little red riding hood like the young girl represents she's like the the embodiment of innocence and childhood and that doesn't really go away for red riding hood either Mm -hmm. and so i think that like that innocence allows you to have access to the fairy tale structure in Mm -hmm. a way that like becoming more jaded or becoming more grown up doesn't does that Mm -hmm. make sense yeah totally yeah um that really works because when they are again when they're in the carriage when it's just ophelia and her mother she has all of her books and her mother says i don't know why you had to bring all of these books with you you when are you we're moving you're you're getting a little too old for all these stories and that that comes up a couple of times Mm -hmm. her mother tells that to her um, the captain says that to her. He he further down the line, um, the captain like blames uh, his wife and mm. the mother for filling her head with these stories. And mm. this is why she's acting this way. Um, and it's as if they don't you know, they're for, they're wanting to kind of force her to let go of that and mm-hmm. like grow up and like get with it, like get with the program, like mm-hmm. forget your own ideals and conform. Mm-hmm. Right. Like they just want you to conform to their ways which i think is a fantastic like um like i know that this is a dark fairy tale but i think that like the the idea of setting this fairy tale in such a fucked up system as fascism and in an abusive or neglectful family like these are things that allow you to understand like fairy tales better because like the the grim fairy tales and stuff they were always quite grim and this this movie doesn't just give us like the Disney-fied fairy tale. It gives us the grim part of the fairy tale as well. And it makes it richer and it makes it deeper and it makes you understand it better. And it also like draws your attention to not just the importance of innocence, but also the, uh, what's the word? Endurance of innocence. Mm. Because like it's very hard to picture innocence thriving under fascism and and fascism is something that emphasizes obedience and emphasizes like hatred and an outgroup, right? And and like saying no to things that you don't understand. But because of the starkness of that belief system, Ophelia's willingness to understand, willingness to look, and her resilience are both really highlighted. And um that that's really cool. I think it serves like yeah. Often our fairy tales aren't just sanitized in terms of content, but they're also sanitized in terms of context, right? Like Cinderella lives in this perfect place and blah, 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 blah. But 
when we take these stories out of the context in which they were told, a context in which yes. people were very afraid of things, people were having a really hard time, people were living in German forests and there were wolves everywhere. Like when you take the stories out of that context, they lose so much. And this this is a perfectly told modern fairy tale because it includes that context. Yes. And, and on that note, um, you brought up like, you know, how Disney kind of sanitizes these fairy tales. Mm-hmm. And then Disney really, in a way, kind of monopolized like the fairy tale. Right. Yeah. Because all of like like Walt Disney, <laughs> he he wasn't stupid. Like he wasn't messing around. He knew what he was doing. Mm-hmm. And by taking all of this like public domain fairy tale stories and creating this thing that was pumped into you know our culture and our blood as like this is like this is what fairy tale is mm-hmm. you know they they pretty much all like cinderella sleeping beauty snow white like none of those were original stories but they just mm-hmm. took them and they were they were completely um sprouted from very patriarchal conservative ideas mm-hmm. honestly like yeah. like the grim the grim brothers and um who's the other one Pro- who is the other uh, author of fairy tales who's like one of the original ones i can't like, remember some european guy i can't remember his name not hans christian Andersen. No, no there's another guy i can't remember um but yeah a lot of these were kind of um limited to this l- through this lens of like this patriarchal you know mm-hmm. perspective and i love that del toro takes that and he references so many different fairy tales in this but mm-hmm. he's not at all regurgitating mm-hmm. pre-told stories he's creating his own yeah. story and and flexing past what you know most fairy tale um structures will kind of limit you to mm-hmm. um and one one thing is like there are tons of fairy tales that have a female protagonist right mm-hmm. like there's tons of them right but there aren't that many that paint them in this way yeah. like it is and del Toro has talked about how this is a very feminine it's rooted in a lot of femininity mm-hmm. um and there are a lot of references to that um he he talked about in an interview like the tree like the first task that ophelia is faced with mm-hmm. is to feed this giant toad uh under who lives under this dead fig tree uh three stones in order to retrieve a key and move on to the next task mm-hmm. and the tree if you look at it it resembles fallopian tubes and like there's mm-hmm. a lot of imagery like that that mm-hmm. speaks to a lot of femininity and i think it's really cool and then you have obviously like the mother being pregnant and like this um this idea of i don't know just just a lot of like feminine influence and and i think that it's done in a really powerful way not in like a stereotypical way that i think a lot of other fairy tales might think are feminine like mm-hmm. the like oh girly things like it's not that it's not about this like reduced you know view of feminism mm-hmm. it's like the empowering nature of like this thing yeah and it really like it really focuses on ophelia's relationship with people rather than a relation like not hang on what am i saying so like i feel like in a lot of fairy tales you get like the princess needs a husband or you know the princess needs a prince but like so the roles that are prescribed to women in fairy tales are like put upon them but in this case in this movie Ophelia is pursuing every role that she tries to take right Mm -hmm. so like she wants to be princess she wants to 
engage with the magic and and like she really wants to save her mom and she asks for that repeatedly like there's a strong relationship there she also has a like a very beautiful relationship with her baby brother who isn't born yet for most of the movie and so Mm -hmm. like these are the relationships and roles that she's pursuing is like the people that she loves not necessarily the ones that are being handed to her or or imposed upon her by a society yeah it's it's all about what she wants in her perspective rather than someone yeah. like what someone else thinks that an 11 yes. year old girl should be thinking of yes um which kudos to del toro yeah. for like being able to write that Very i impressive. mean i love it's that pretty guy. remarkable yeah okay so yeah so kind of moving into ophelia's relationships mm-hmm. right so she has this relationship with her mother I feel like Ophelia, she she really wants to do what's right. And mm-hmm. she wants to um she wants to be a good big sister. Mm-hmm. She's very um, you know, uh focused on making sure that her mother's healthy and that she's able to, you know, be a good big sister to this baby brother. And she's immediately faced with this atrocious man, Captain Vidal, mm-hmm. who is just a sack of shit from the start. But but I think like okay, so what I'm what I'm getting to here mm-hmm. is when she goes to complete the first task, this is prior to a big dinner that the captain is hosting with some important I'm a, I'm assuming public like political figures who are going to be coming to their home mm-hmm. and this is his first time that he's showing off his his trophy wife that's mm-hmm. pregnant with his you know his son. yeah his son that he's going to be like his namesake that he's passing his name down to mm-hmm. and his like traumatic legacy um and and her mother Ophelia's mother made her this beautiful green dress and it is this really pretty dress she's very proud of it uh, Ophelia tries it on and she is like uh Ophelia if I you don't even know if I had a dress like this when I was a little girl like I would have been so happy and look at these shoes aren't they beautiful and Ophelia wants to make her mother proud she really does she loves her mother and Mm -hmm. she knows that her stepfather is not treating her well she sees Mm -hmm. it and so she kind of sees that like just as much Ophelia doesn't have anyone out here either does her mother right and so she's like I have to be strong for her and so the thing that blows my mind when I was watching this I was like why the fuck did they have her try that dress on and then then keep it it on for the whole day? Try it on and then change into something else. But what's so sweet, so Ophelia goes off to complete her first task. She finds the tree and she looks in there. She kind of evaluates the situation and with all of her intuition realizes this might not be the type of scenario that I should be wearing this dress in. And so she takes the dress off. Mm -hmm. She takes the dress off. She hangs it on the tree and she's wearing like a little slip and she goes into the tree um, gets completely covered with toad mucus and mud and all sorts of unspeakable matter. Um, and But what I love is that she, it really impressed me that like in that moment when she was caught up in this magic and caught up in the, I'm assuming the the anxiety and the excitement and the tension that's being created in this moment, she still has the 
like the consideration mm-hmm. to take this dress off like she's still thinking of her mother she didn't do that for herself she doesn't care about the dress yeah. and she, and she still ends up getting screwed over <laughs> because when she comes out the dress has been blown off because there was a big storm and it starts mm-hmm. raining um but one thing i i read uh in an article on screen rant was that the toad because i was trying to figure out like these different tasks and what they might represent Mm -hmm. and one take that i really liked was that the toad was um oppression of femininity Hmm. and um you know she has to like uh journey through this big tree and find the toad and she has to use her her smarts to kind of trick him into eating these mm-hmm. um and and then once she gets the key you know she comes out and she sees that the dress has been torn off of the tree um and it's this uh, imagery of the dr- i'm not explaining this well i guess i haven't fully like i like the idea of it but now mm-hmm. that i'm talking about it i'm like i don't actually know how it is oppression of femininity yeah. i should well, have like, thought about that a little more i i don't know i i feel like there's a lot of baggage that comes along with being feminine in this world right mm-hmm. and like i i i totally like when you stop prioritizing what other people want sometimes like what they want gets kind of cast to the side but like it's those feminine expectations yeah i i, yeah. I don't really yeah know yeah, exactly yeah. but like i i I get it there's you have to cast aside a bit of this desire to like appease other people right you learn how to choose what actually matters to you and like she did try and take care of the dress she didn't mean to get it dirty Mm -hmm. but also like those symbols of appealing to other people don't quite matter as much once you've taken power and you've found yourself yeah and when you've kind of decided what's important to you exactly. and what your goals are yeah where you're going yeah. yeah totally so yeah i i totally it's great mm-hmm. um one thing i wanted to talk about was the 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 gorilla um soldiers yeah, in the yeah, area because yeah. this is kind of where like it's in this time like just after the first task where we start to get to know them a little better mm-hmm. i don't know there's like all this intrigue with um uh, Mercedes mm-hmm. and how she's like a spy for the anti-fascist soldiers. I love Mercedes. Oh, oh she's so cool. Mm-hmm. And like, I love that there's a very like healthy sort of friendship that built that gets built between her and Ophelia because they both have so much on the line, and like they have differing like perspectives and different motivations, but they're both just trying to take care of people and trying to get rid of this like monster on their back i don't know yeah. Mo- monster like because like because Mer- because they're being tormented by the same person oh, and the 100%. same concept and mercedes like, has her brother yeah who's exactly part of the resistance and ophelia has her mother who's being directly mm-hmm. yeah targeted. and so they're they're people who are using kind of again like so ophelia like tricks the toad into eating the rocks right and like mercedes this whole time she's tricking totally. the captain like they're using this like feminine and sort of like demure and a little more like wily uh way of attacking something because instead of like trying to shove the rocks down the throat uh, down the toad's throat or instead of like actively fighting in the woods they're doing something that's a lot more dangerous but also very very effective in this situation they both represent a, a 
really effective and beautiful dynamic of femininity. Yes, yeah. I love that so much. And and the ability to use their resources. And one thing, okay, so Mercedes says a couple times that she's such a coward. She mm-hmm. she feels guilty for being the person who's washing the captain's clothes, who's feeding him, mm-hmm. who's living within the same walls as this man, right? Mm-hmm. And yet she she is doing so much good. I mean, she mm-hmm. ultimately ends up being the reason why they're able to conquer mm-hmm. him in exactly. the end. She provides the key. Like, she she does all of that. Mm. Um, oh, I didn't even think about the key. Yeah, because Mercedes... Oh, my gosh, because Mercedes she, has the key, and then Ophelia has her key, which is yeah. another parallel um, of how they're both doing their part to, like, take down. I didn't even think about yeah, that. Yeah, that's cool. Oh, yeah. goddamn, Del Toro. There's, like, this... You're amazing. Yeah, I, I think that, like... And when you analyze the two of them together as like having that key and quietly going about what they need to be doing and protecting the people that they love, like, and also we can't forget the fact that like they both have crises at the same time, right? So like um, after the second, so during the second task, Ophelia, she's told not to eat anything in the labyrinth and she does eat something, which we'll talk more about. And then Mercedes, she, uh, there's like a point where, um, the soldiers like attack some no they they raid a, a weapons not a weapons cache but like a cache of supplies I think oh it's when they derail the train is that yeah, what you're talking about I think so it's I as a distraction yeah yeah so they derail the like, train as a distraction but yeah, yeah and yeah, then and then later things. like she uses the key to let the um let the other guys in to like get some supplies or something and the captain like gets her for it he's like oh mm-hmm. this is the key I, i'm sorry yeah, I'm, no 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 yeah i've only that's... seen this one so i'm a little foggy get, on some of the, the details <laughs> but like so they have that that crisis where like they're kind of found out they're they they both like went a little bit too far a bit at the same time and they both lose people over it mm-hmm. um and it's or, or they lose a lot over it um and it's yeah. It's not easy. It's not, yeah. you're not going to get out of this without fucking up a little bit. But that doesn't mean it's not worth doing. Like yes. being brave in those small, quiet ways. Yes. Yeah. I, that was where I was going. I with love the whole that. Thing. No, that's a great point. Yeah. Um, since you brought up the second task, yeah, I, let's ooh, talk yeah. about it. <laughs> this is interesting because, like, I think that the second task contains, like, the most vivid image that we oh get from this the movie. The most iconic, what most people think of when yeah. they think of Pan's Labyrinth is mm-hmm. this disturbing, horror esque man yeah, who the, has the his man. eyeballs in his hands so and cool. uses those to see. Yeah. Um yeah, so she's told Ophelia's told before going on the second task that there are only two rules. And the first rule what's the first rule? I remember the second rule. The second oh, oh the first rule is to back. get through before the the time mm-hmm. uh, runs out. Yeah. And then the second one is to not eat anything. There will mm-hmm. be a gorgeous feast you cannot eat anything so she she draws the little chalk door right because that's how she gets into the other dimension and she makes her way through she's not even phased by this pale man sitting there um completely lifeless just just sitting with his creepy 
hands and these like tenderly black fingers. Oh, so scary. And eyeballs just on a plate. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She even picks up the eyeballs. Yeah, she and looks she, at them. She has no trepidation. Yeah. She's just kind of like curious about it all. Yeah. And she sees this whole feast and she sees this these luscious grapes. Mm-hmm. And she just can't contain herself because she had been sent to bed that night without supper. That's right. I forgot because about that. Because that was the night of the dinner, the feast, um, yeah. the, the dinner party. And because she got her dress dirty. Her mother dirty. sent her to bed without supper. And so yeah. the the timing is unfortuitous because mm-hmm. her tum-tum's growling. Yeah. <laughs> she needs her, her, uh, her strength. Yeah. And so she has a moment of weakness and she partakes of a couple of the grapes. And her back is to the pale man. And while she is eating these grapes, this is probably what I think categorizes this movie as a horror film to me. That and I all the violence. Think of it, I don't really think of it as like a horror necessarily. Um, definitely more of a dark fairy tale. But like this scene is it's very terrifying. It's it's so horrifying. Um, so he kind of starts like slowly coming to life and, and we as the audience, this is true suspense, right? Because the audience sees something that the protagonist doesn't. Mm-hmm. She cannot see that he is coming to life. Yeah. And the fairies are trying to warn her that she is like whacking him away because she's enjoying her little mm-hmm. sumptuous treat. Um, and then the pale man starts coming at her. And he eats two of the yeah, he I don't know if you fairies. were going to say this. No, yeah, yeah, it's like awful. You see him just like grab them out of the air and then bite their heads off. And it's like, oh, oh, fuck. I didn't think you, oh, no. Like, it's, uh, it's so devastating. It's, it's very gruesome. Yeah. I will say this movie's a lot more violent than I remembered it yeah. being. Um, so, yeah, just keep that in mind. Content warning. If if that, you know, is is bothersome to you. Totally it is worth quite it. quite graphic. It. it is worth it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so... This seems really cool to me because, um, so I watched this uh, video essay by a really great YouTuber I love called Nerdwriter, and he does a lot of film analysis, and he has this really cool um, little eight-minute like analysis of Pan's Labyrinth, and he talks about how in this scene specifically, there are so many references um, to different fairy tales, different mm. films that Del Toro throws in there. Um, so this pale man, he each children i mean there are paintings all over the wall of children being like attacked right yeah. am i making that up i'm pretty sure there are paintings of that that would that makes I, sense. I feel I like think so probably i feel like that's what it is yes um but yeah, yeah. so there are like quite a few um mythological uh figures who were like this one one is chronos who was a greek god who right I think he was, was one of the Titans or something. Yeah, but uh, but it, I think it's part of Greek mythology. Yeah, Kronos, I think, is Greek. And he would eat his grandchildren so that they would not come and take his power away mm-hmm. in the future. Um, and then we have a couple of other references. We have a, a shot of a pile of shoes which is referencing all of the shoes of the children that he's eaten in that dining hall. Ooh. Yeah. And there are there are a lot of ties and parallels to um, Nazism here. So yeah. we have, uh, you know, there are a lot of images out there of pictures of, of shoes um, from mm-hmm. the Holocaust, you know, piles of shoes of the victims. and And so that is a direct reference to that. Um, so, you know, we can see clearly what 
del Toro saying here. And then also, um, when Ophelia first walks into the dining room and sees the pale man sitting at the head of the table, right before this scene, the dinner scene, we see basically the same shot. They frame yeah. it the same, and it's the same shaped table. Um, and the captain is sitting at the head just like the pale man is. Mm. So this is definitely... Um, whether you choose to believe that this is all in Ophelia's head or if this is reality, there's definitely a parallel here mm-hmm. because he goes on uh, Vidal to kill children. Like he, I mean, he he's had like so many victims, yeah. and he's basically his son. Well, he he sacrifices his wife basically to have his son, mm-hmm. and then puts his son in danger constantly, like from the very start. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I just think like that scene, once I realized like all of those very intentional, uh, direct correlations, I was just pretty floored. Like, yeah. yeah. And it's interesting because I, like, I think Vidal also acts as sort of like synecdoche for fascism in general. Yeah. And the pale man has a lot of things in common with fascism as a concept, right? Like, I I still think, like, his the hands and the eyes thing, it's super fascinating because, mm-hmm. like, he can't, like, chase her and see at the same time. Yeah. He can't, like, grab at her and, and see at the same time. Like, there is a certain blindness that comes with, like, just charging forward and acting and, and being so I don't know astute. it's about consumption oh right? my god Danny, and like yes. the the sort of ravenous approach that he has like consuming everything really really quickly um that's also very emblematic of a strictly hierarchical structure it's always going to be eating the things that it finds even when mm. it has like a bunch of great things at the table it's still yes, gonna fucking yes a whole feast yeah and like there's so much promise of like there will be abundance but he's thin and pale and he can't like eat anything good without killing someone oh my like God. there's um yeah it it's very interesting uh yeah like i i have no like thing to end on but mm-hmm. just like the it's so f- I I hadn't even realized how much of that symbolism is there uh, in each of the tasks. Like I knew that there was, but I hadn't like sat down and thought about it and be like, wow, like he uh, like Del Toro is being like extremely explicit in these ways. Like he has a very deep, very like personal story to tell. Yes. And yes, he does it so, so well. Um, Yes. Yeah. And then the way it ties back, like, we see Vidal killing people. We see Vidal uh, smash a bottle into an innocent oh rabbit gosh. farmer's face. Yeah. <laughs> like there's people, like innocent people get hurt. Innocent fairies get hurt. Um, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Those are really, really, really good points. Anyway, um, I we are at like an hour and five minutes. So I think maybe let's take a break and then we can come back and talk about the third task, some of the things that happen. Um, and then, yeah. So I, I think Final we just need a boys. quick break. Yeah. We're going to take a break. We'll yeah. be back. We will still be talking for quite a bit after this. But yeah, we'll be back. BRB. We're back. We're back. Hey, y'all. We're back. <laughs> um, yeah, so we are 
going to get into the beautiful ending, the beautifully tragic ending of this film. The final act. Ooh, it's there's a there's a lot to unpack with the ending, I feel like. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of it's different dense. interpretations, yeah, that yeah. you could like take away. Um but I think yeah, we can kind of pick up with uh so, you know, Ophelia finished the second act or the second task. Mm-hmm. She but was she messed banned up on the way. From, yeah. She basically got you know, 86 from the whole thing. Because... You can tell you've been working in a restaurant for a while. Cause... 86 that. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, the fawn was like, okay, no more. We're mm-hmm. done. No one. But I love that she got a second chance because yeah. a lot of shit went down. Yeah. Mainly um, Mercedes getting caught in the act. And of... also, like, her mom. Dying? Yeah, there's like, so she had put like a mandrake root under her mom's bed as part of the magic to like heal her mom and it was working. It was working and it then, was beautiful. And then. And then she was exposed. Yeah, Vidal found it. Fuck and you, Vidal. Like he and her mom like throw the mandrake root into the fire and her mom like. The mom was. Immediately yes, dies. Literally. And, and Vidal chose to save his son's life. Yeah, he over... explicitly tells the doctor, like, I don't care about my wife. Just and get the baby out. Up to this point, we suspected that he w- we knew. Well, we knew he was a piece of shit, but oh, we yeah, suspected sure. that he was using her. But now it's very clear. That yeah. His intention was solely to get yeah. a namesake. Out like of this, this woman is only valuable to me insofar as she can bear me a son. And it's specifically a son, too. He yes. doesn't really like... It, yeah, if it was a daughter, he wouldn't have been no. pleased. Like, he says earlier in the movie, like, oh, you know, take care of my son to the doctor. And the doctor's like, uh, how do you, you know, know it's a boy? <laughs> right. It's the 1940s. It's like, oh, we don't I have know. ultrasounds yet. And he's like, don't fuck with me, dude. I feel like, it in my balls. I know. It's, yeah, it's like, <laughs> I'm masculine enough to make a boy, all right? My testosterone like, okay. said so. Yeah. <laughs> I can feel it in my nuts. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so um, it's pretty so fucked yeah, up. Fuck that guy. Yeah. yeah, so her mom dies, and then Marce- yeah, a, uh, literally, we could call this sequence a series of unfortunate events. Yeah, for it's, it's kind of like a waterfall of things just like all hitting the fan at once. Like her mom dies, and then Mercedes is found found out. And Ooh. Uh, and I do before we gloss over like Mercedes being found out. Yes, I yes, I want you to get into to that. reference just the. The quote, like reviewing my notes and remembering the beautiful line that Mercedes said to Vidal before she like took knife to his fucking mouth yeah. cheek. This won't be the first pig that I've gutted. Yeah. <laughs> like, yes, you pig, you Ugh. fascist pig. She's so great. She's like, such a badass. I know. I-, I was actually kind of pondering during the break. Like, I was thinking about the three kind of main women in this story is like, Ophelia, Mercedes, and Ophelia's mom, which I think her name was Carmen. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, like, they all embodied, like, sort of different phases of a woman's life. We have the child, we have, like, the younger woman who's working, and then we have the mother. And, like, it's all, I don't know, it shows that if your only value value is to a man, like, that's going to be, that's going to put you in danger. But then if you pursue the things that you want, and if you're, like, in a space I don't know it's it's what you were talking about earlier with like the oppression of women Mm -hmm. um as relates to the tree like it's kind of like women are things to be consumed Mm. and used and Um, as soon as you start like you know fending for yourself mm -hmm. people start to 
they get mad out. like yeah they get mad and then you have to like rip a fascist cheek off which you know you must. Is fine it must but, be done yeah like you definitely need to I do that i really like that i i think yeah. that's beautiful too because we look at we look at the relationship between ophelia and carmen and the relationship with ophelia and um mercedes and i wouldn't say that either of those are like you know carry more weight or are more important but they do have different you know qualities yeah different different... dynamics for Mm -hmm. sure yeah and and it sucks that like carmen kind of has become a victim to this fascist regime in as much you know she like you said ultimately she ends up contributing to you know throwing the mandrake root into the fire and she ultimately brings about her own demise of course Mm -hmm. unbeknownst to her right she's not intentionally doing that yeah and like betraying her daughter a little bit yeah Uh, she definitely wanted to protect her daughter protect herself protect her son like her main motivation is to find stability but kind of the point is that, like, there isn't always stability. Sometimes you have to fight for something else, yeah. right? And so stability, stability is fine. Stability is a good thing to aspire to. It's not always, like... But there are certain situations where you can't achieve stability. And in yeah. those moments, you kind of have to say no. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I, I think it's beautiful that the magic was able to help her last longer. Yeah. Like the way that we care for each other, the way that we care for ourselves mm-hmm. is a part of how beautiful our lives can be. Um, but rejecting yeah. that magic and throwing it away is um, is a mistake. Yes. And yeah. I think I think there's something to be said about uh, individual perception of mm. magic, right? Because Absolutely. with Ophelia, she clearly is fully immersed in this magical world Mm -hmm. and she not only like believes it but she knows that this is helping she sees the fruit of like her efforts and as soon as someone comes in to deny that and to challenge that you know that doesn't diminish her belief she still like stands steadfast she still knows what's real right And something I noticed about Mercedes is that she is, like, she's not completely closed off to the magic. Like, she seems aware, like, not necessarily of, like, the magic, but she talks about the labyrinth. She says, like, this labyrinth is old. They're just rocks that have been here for forever, like, since before the mill. She respects it. She has a sense of respect, yes. Like, she's not trying to find, um, like, some external source or like an explanation yeah. like some yeah but totally but she like has a goal she has a community and she respects the place that she is and she respects Ophelia's connection with the magic or her belief in the magic mm-hmm. you know and it, to a certain extent m- maybe she's looking at this kid like your belief in the magic is kind of like my belief in the revolution you yeah know? that also kind of leads me to think about the lullaby that she sings oh absolutely to her and like music Let's be honest, it's a form of magic. Yeah. Music is so powerful, and it is kind of this ethereal, like, 
intangible force that affects us in really real ways Mm -hmm. and at the end I mean I'm jumping the gun that's my game I love to do that but like her singing that lullaby at the end like she isn't afraid to acknowledge yeah any sort of like potential magic but yeah the the beauty in the world and yeah. it, it's beautiful it's great that they like start the movie with that lullaby mm-hmm. and then they have it in the middle and then at the end as well it's so beautiful yeah it's fantastic um <sighs> yeah anyways so after mercedes is found out and absolutely fucks up vidal uh what happens after that it's like well that's so she is like basically ready to escape so right. mercedes is like time to go yeah. i gotta get out of here I have a very short period of time after, you know, of like a fully offending Vidal and then having to get out and Ophelia mm-hmm. begs to go with her because right. Ophelia is locked in her room at this point. Yeah. And, and like so, she's lost everything. Like yeah, her mom is gone. She's not going to have any access to her little brother. Like there's no liberation or anything. She's just in the house with this tyrant. It's Cinderella. And she's lost her- access to. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. She's to, also lost a- access to the to, magic because yeah. the fawn said like no you messed up you can't like you're gonna live and die with the humans you can't be the princess of the underworld anymore yeah and uh yeah so then mercedes comes and says like hey i'm leaving ophelia tries to go with she can't and then is that when the fawn comes to her Uh uh-huh and gives gives her one last chance yeah and says if you can bring your brother to the labyrinth Mm -hmm. this is the last task bring your brother and Mm -hmm. then I'll see you there. Yeah. And so this is really interesting to me. So Ophelia sneaks into Vidal's room, which is where her baby brother is. Mm -hmm. I think it's his office or his room, something like that. Yeah. I think it's like a lot of things like he, it's his sanctum. It's his lair. It's his man cave. (laughs) Um, And did you notice like the, production design in his office I wasn't really paying attention it's pretty cool so there's a bunch of gears so like part of me is like was this like common or popular in the 1940s probably not because we have already established that del Toro is a genius Mm -hmm. and he's very intentional with everything but if you notice his office his lair is pretty um, reminiscent of the watch that his yeah. father gave him or that he got from his father of, like right. that stopped at the time that he died mm-hmm. there's all of these gears in this office and it, it really resembles a clock and right. I love that because it speaks to Vidal as a character mm-hmm. in that he's very mechanical mm-hmm. he's very he just marches forward like a clock would do mm-hmm. it's not forgiving of anything he yeah. has one goal and it persists mm-hmm. Um, so I love that aspect. But yeah, she sneaks into his office and is able to first drug him. Mm-hmm. I don't remember what she slips into his drink. I think it's something like morphine, like it's some sort of opiate or barbiturate. Mm-hmm. But like basically it's the thing that the doctor gave her mom to like mm-hmm. sleep. And now she's using it. They they used a really good like planting reminder payoff thing. <clears throat> thing. Because you see, see yeah, you see the dropper like three times Mm. and it's perfectly timed out through the movie. It's great. Ooh, I love that. I didn't pick up on that. Well, also, Uh, like, Del Toro said that this movie is structured in threes. So, like, yeah, I I guess it's part of that. that. Yeah, Yeah, totally. So, yeah, she's able to extract her baby brother from Vidal. 
she takes off mm-hmm. on foot uh, to the labyrinth so that she can complete the third task. Mm-hmm. And if we're being honest, save her baby brother yeah. from this fucking fascist yeah. who has nothing good in store for him or for her. Yeah. So, or for Spain. <laughs> right. Yeah. Or for Spain, for anyone. So yeah. she is able to find her way to the labyrinth. The labyrinth works in her favor, cutting him off mm-hmm. at all. He does eventually catch up with them. Um, but she meets with the fawn. And mm-hmm. the fawn reveals to her that the final third task is to sacrifice innocent blood mm-hmm. so that she can... Um, so regain she can, yeah. her her throne mm-hmm. so she can and, go like live with her mom and dad and he says oh it's just a drop just mm-hmm. just a drop of blood we just need some blood to open the portal to the underworld mm-hmm. and of course ophelia yeah. refuses she's so of sweet she's she like no of course not and i think it's so it's it's so cool because like this baby was making her mom sick the whole time. Like, she, this baby is related to Vidal. This baby basically killed her mom. Like, obviously it's not his fault, but, like, there's a lot of potential for resentment or, like, yeah. maybe this maybe this baby shouldn't matter to me more than, like, living in the underworld for the rest of my life. But, she, no, like, this innocence that she has and this care and this sense of connection endures because in a very real way he is sort of the last connection that she has to her mom yeah and he's innocent yeah and these are the things that she values Mm. and so yeah she says no no way like i'm not Mm -hmm. gonna hurt this innocent thing because you say that i need to Mm, Um, that's beautiful so like it's such a huge sacrifice absolutely because we've seen her have the magic yanked away from her before and this time she's like choosing it under really dire circumstances yeah <laughs> yeah also it's like huge what like she doesn't know what's waiting for her outside the labyrinth like she knows that vidal is gonna is gonna be mad but she doesn't know what's going on with the revolution because at the same time mercedes and the guerrillas are um they're like storming the mill and taking mm-hmm. over everything which is freaking awesome yes but um she she has no context for that she just knows that like in this moment this is what i have to do and honestly to write a character that is so inspiring i mean i feel so inspired by ophelia like not only because it doesn't seem like she's trying to prove herself in that in that moment she is confronted with her last task and she has tried really hard to prove herself worthy of this you know Mm -hmm. uh throne but in this moment she is just staying true to her heart and to what she believes is right and that is like how many of us can say that when it comes down to that moment we would be able to stand up in that way and it's pretty phenomenal um yeah and so essentially uh she is in the midst of speaking with the fawn Mm -hmm. and vidal comes upon this and what's really interesting is we see we see from his perspective he he finds them in the middle of the labyrinth and he looks at 
Ophelia and all he sees is her. Mm-hmm. Doesn't see the fawn. So <clears throat> this leads to the question of, you know, is this in Ophelia's head or is this really happening? Mm-hmm. And I really, I don't think it matters. Like, yeah, I don't, I I don't think, think it's functionally like the same thing. In the right? same way as like whatever is happening in our head is reality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> whatever yeah. we make reality to be is what affects us and impacts us. Exactly. And so like the way that she's experiencing her relationship with the fun and her relationship with the underworld, like that is the magic mm-hmm. is her believing it. Right. And push comes to shove. The doll is massacring that magic yeah from every angle exactly and he like if it is like quote-unquote real if anyone could see the fawn he certainly wouldn't wouldn't. be the one to see he doesn't have the ability to perceive that like because he's the clock he's the watch he's Mm -hmm. the cog in the machine Mm -hmm. right he serves something that doesn't know anything about magic or love right and uh yeah so yeah Ugh. Uh, so, so and so we see we see at this point Ophelia turn down this request from the fawn yeah. to And the fawn looks shocked. Like I know. At first the when I was watching this, because I mentioned at the beginning that this is only like my second time around seeing this, and I almost was a little taken aback because the fawn seemed pretty manipulative because, like, yeah. he was saying, and and we find out later that this was the last test. Mm-hmm. But like at first, I was like, "Wait, what is the fawn's place in all of yeah. this? Like, is he like some pawn for fascism too? Like, mm-hmm. he's like a decoy." <laughs> but but it yeah. proves later that he wasn't. But yeah, he's shocked that she turns down. Like, because mm-hmm. I think yeah, it would be very easy, like you said, to hold this sort of vitriol and bitterness towards mm-hmm. this baby brother that took your mom's life away mm-hmm. she doesn't see it that way and also Ophelia had already like fucked up a task like yeah. she had I guess maybe in the fawn's eyes proven unworthy in some mm. way and so maybe he was just really taken aback and she... thought maybe if I push more she will mm. give in like there's this feeling of like you have to go to the edge like they ha- she has to have an adequate temptation mm-hmm. so it has to be believable he's right. a good actor i don't know um no, that's, so i'm that's wondering good. if that's it like i i mean ultimately he was trying to get her to well not trying to get her but he was testing her to get her to her eternal like happiness yeah but you know fawn's not really he's a very ambiguous creature absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. um so she ends up turning down that request to hand over her baby brother and I think I think she sees through like him trying to soften Mm -hmm. the ultimate task of like it's just a pin drop of blood I think she has also been tainted enough by like false promises Mm -hmm. and and seeing how adults interact with others that like that's probably a lie like I doubt it's just a pin drop of blood it's probably gonna be worse and so she ultimately ends up so so Vidal comes in and takes the baby mm-hmm. and he shoots her shoots her yeah and we see the shot of her falling to the ground which is the very first shot we see in the film mm-hmm. played in reverse which is cool um well it's played in reverse at the beginning and then we see 
the resistance come up, right? Is it is that the order of operations? Yeah, it kind and of happens see, as yeah. it's it's happening, right? Like she, she you see her ground. falling and and you know it's bleeding. obvious we see blood on her hands. Yeah, and then Vidal goes out mm-hmm. and meets the resistance yeah. with Mercedes and Mercedes' brother. Yeah, and he knows what his fate is. Yeah, he's lost at this point, so he hands the baby over. Yeah. And I love the. Man, his the final fuck you to him. Like he looks at them and asks, like, please tell my son what time I die. Yeah, because like he's so his dad, with that. yeah, because yeah. like his dad smashed the watch on a rock yep. to make sure that to make sure that he knows that's like his legacy. Yeah. To- um, and then after he, after Vidal fixes the watch, he's like, okay, like just let my son know and Mercedes, Mercedes doesn't even let him finish she's like no he won't, your son will never know who he you won't were even know your name yeah. oh <gasps> that's I love Mercedes oh my she's God. so good she's such a badass I love her like the the absolute conviction mm. and like I'm not gonna give you an ounce of respect you would have killed me in an instant Like, you wouldn't have given me a last wish. Yeah. You don't get it either. And what I love, too, is that we were talking earlier about how Mercedes perceived herself to be such a coward. And she shamed herself for not doing enough. Because she looked at her brother being out in the woods, you know, being part of this active, like, guerrilla warfare. And yet she's there, you know, having to be in the midst of, like, all of this. Yeah, working for the enemy. Yeah. And... I love this because it just shows that, like, (laughs) I think it's so relatable because, again, we were talking about the beginning. Like, Mm -hmm. we tend to not give ourselves enough credit for what we do. And and Mercedes is a prime example of how she is fighting the ultimate good fight. And she is giving everything. And she proves herself at the end here. You know, again, like, her ability to just stay completely like resolute and mm-hmm. and just not even hesitate she doesn't even realize what she's doing yeah. and i think i think that it's a good reminder that as long as we are rooted and focusing on our hearts you know biggest desire that sounds so cheesy but mm-hmm. like what we know to be true and what matters to us and we have our people around us to support us. We we know that we are going to come out on top. Yeah. And and whatever that looks like. Like, I don't know. We just need to be a little kinder to ourselves, including Mercedes. And because yeah, and like, she's a badass. Bravery looks very different in different situations, yeah, right? Absolutely. Like, it would be so difficult to get up every morning and look in the face of the guy who's trying to kill you but doesn't know it. Like... And she she still supplies for the gorillas and, and she's like such a core part of of the resistance. Mm-hmm. But this feeling of not doing enough, it's very insidious and, mm-hmm. and like yeah. yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so okay, this so leads us Vidal to the next part. Yeah, well and then and, we... and it's so fucking cool though, because so her brother, Mercedes brother shoots him like in the cheek Mm -hmm. and the bullet this is such another good moment because the bullet like penetrates his face and then we see his eye like roll back do you notice that no we see the eye roll back into his head oh and i think that's so cool because i noticed that there's a total motif with eyes yeah and i think that's like was it the same eye that ophelia got off the ground and put in the statue earlier oh 
I don't know. I mean, there's <gasps> only two eyes, so like it's 50-50 if it was like on purpose or not. <laughs> right. But. but but definitely like either way, like yeah. there's definitely way, a motif with the eyes. Mm-hmm. I love that because he is incapable of being able to perceive the truth. Yeah. <laughs> because he's so, you know, clouded by this like who he should like who he should be this like icon of masculinity that he's intended to be right Right, yeah and uh yeah yeah. so he dies and then we see mercedes finally they they find ophelia Mm -hmm. and she finds ophelia lifeless and she begins singing this lullaby Mm -hmm. and then we cut to ophelia yeah well you kind of so you see ophelia's hand like kind of dangling over the pit of the labyrinth and little drops of gut mm-hmm. of blood are like falling to the ground yep. and it's sort of you you realize like oh that's her, the innocent blood her blood is the innocent blood which yeah. goes back to what we were saying before too like um not not the theme of like loss of innocence but like the celebration yeah. of innocence and you know yeah the preservation of yes yeah, yeah the endurance mm, yes, of innocence yes, that's the word I yeah love that. and and like being able to choose innocence because if she had given up her brother i don't think her blood would have been innocent anymore no, right so absolutely. like all of these parts of the test and the magic kind of come together and you know you get to see like it in the spilling of her blood at the end that's her triumph that's her winning yeah and and then we see the transition into the underworld um we see her returning to what has been allegedly been her home mm-hmm. what i love about the scene so when we see her kind of land in the underworld there's this shot there's this iconic shot mm-hmm. of her shoes and she's wearing red shoes and oh, she kind of clicks her heels like a little and reference. it's another reference to Wizard of Oz like there's yeah. no place like home yeah. and it's if similar. you think about it the yellow brick road is just like an open air labyrinth so oh uh, hell yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love that take yeah. and it's cool because it's like it again it again lends to this idea of like with Wizard of Oz like we it doesn't matter whether or not any of this happened like it's like fantasy it's magical realism mm-hmm. but like what matters is that she triumphed mm-hmm. you know she was completely true to her ethics her beliefs her mm-hmm. morals and she was able to land there and she's greeted by the king her mother mm-hmm. which I'm assuming the king was her like tailor father the original yeah, I would father we so. never I saw so. him but yeah and then we see the fawn saying like you pass the ultimate test you know and and then I love how we cut back to reality. And mm-hmm. then we see, because we see Mercedes singing to her, and we see this, like, ever so slight little smile mm-hmm. on Ophelia's face, even after she had been lifeless before. And to me, like, yeah, whether or not she actually truly inherited the underworld as this queen, um, Princess Moana, mm-hmm. regardless, that was her reality, right? Yeah. Because that's how she ended her earthly realm Mm -hmm. um yeah and i um so like i was watching it on amazon prime and like in the x-ray thing that they have it had a quote from guillermo del toro that i i should have written down all right i found it so it's not just guillermo del toro um 
It's a quote from Soren Kierkegaard, and it says, "Who is Soren Kierkegaard?" Uh, he uh, Kierkegaard was a philosopher. Oh, cool. Um, okay. I can't remember exactly what his beliefs were, but he was like a eighteen uh, hundreds guy, okay. like late eighteen hundreds. Um, so it says. The tyrant's reign ends with his death, but the martyr's reign starts with his death. And then Del Toro follows up. I think that's the essence of the movie. It's about living forever by choosing how you die. And like, Whoa. Ophelia really chose. She's <gasps> got full body chills. That's so cool. She chose the martyr's path. Yeah. And she was triumphant. Like, her story began when she died. I love that. Um, and I, I think that works perfectly because. One of the very, I think actually the last line of the film, because, you know, it says the like Princess Moana goes on to reign for centuries and she was a gracious queen or whatever. And then we see the flower blossom on the tree Mm -hmm. and it says something to the extent of like her legacy is only visible to those who know where to look. And and I think it's all about, you know, the ability to perceive Mm -hmm. and and it goes back to that motif of like the eyes yeah and and having that whatever you perceive innocence to be or the ability to remain focused on the truth Mm -hmm. you know only those who are and it goes back to like magic too Mm -hmm. like you know whether or not you believe in magic and whether like however you choose to define magic Mm -hmm. like it takes the type of person who is able to view that in a certain light yeah um like there's uh, the stuff with the pale man where he like couldn't see because his eyes were in his hands like this feeling of constantly grasping for influence grasping for power trying to consume it applies to the pale man and it applies to Vidal and Ophelia like they didn't have eyes to see they didn't they weren't able to look in the right place and Ophelia was and she eventually won and I just I would hope that I also have eyes to see Mm. you know like trying to look for that magic in the world and embrace the things that matter and not getting swept up and blinded by the things of the world you know I love that. And what a beautiful reminder in these kind of, you know. Life's stressful, man. Crazy, terrible times. Yeah. Just to to give yourself grace mm-hmm. and to also remain focused on the things that actually matter. Yeah. Those connections and trying to remain true yeah. to whatever truth we hold. Um, yeah. I love that. That's so beautiful. And I think that, like... I feel like this, like, as a fairy tale is so rewarding because it may not end. Because when I when I was rewatching it, you know, I was pretty heartbroken that Ophelia ends up dying at the end. Like, she gets shot. Like, she doesn't get to retaliate against him in the way that I would hope to that she would. Mm-hmm. And yet she still ends up winning, like you said. Yeah. and And it is, again, about... Her legacy, what she left behind, what was the quote? Not about how you die, but how yeah, you choose like, to like, um, yeah, something like that. Yeah, a martyr's <laughs> reign yeah. begins with their death. Yeah. And and I think that like, it's such a great reminder to try to remain present in the moment mm-hmm. and to focus on those connections that bring us 
life and joy and value and just not not get so hung up on the other things yeah exactly like she yeah that's all I have to say really about this movie it's fantastic (sighs) it's so good I'm so glad I was able to watch it for this and that we got to have like such a deep and like meaningful exploration of it me too i love this thank yeah. you so much and thank you listeners yes. for tuning in this was fantastic yes we're so happy to be back yeah. um we have some really exciting awesome things in store for the near future mm-hmm. um so please stay tuned we're gonna be back on track we've missed you so much thank you for like sticking around mm-hmm. um we will be announcing some exciting things in the next week mm-hmm. uh so definitely like keep your eyes on social media um we have some potential collabs yeah. that we're gonna be announcing i'm so excited <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm i'm really excited for the next movie we're yes. doing i'm really excited for the things we have planned like mm-hmm. i'm just i missed doing this i missed creating this Me uh and too. so hopefully moving forward we will be able to get our consistent release schedule again and uh you listeners will be provided with entertainment and movie rants uh indefinitely <laughs> And also, on a final note, I completely forgot to mention this at the top of the episode. Um, and I know that there's editing, and that's a thing, and we could work our little post magic, but whatever. No, absolutely um, not. This this movie was actually requested by one of our listeners, Yay, listener. a longtime listener. Um, long time because we've been around for so long. Well, he's been uh, from the very beginning. Yeah, he's been listening from the beginning, but. Rob, Robert Ike, thank you for requesting that we cover Pan's Labyrinth. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm so happy that you brought this into our purview because it was a really juicy one to get into. Absolutely. Um, so thank you so much. Uh, and then, yeah, listeners, like, please interact with us. Like, if you have something you'd like us to cover, we we will promise to get to it. Um, I think Rob requested this like after our second episode and it's taken <laughs> us this long to get into it. I know it's it, been but, like six months. But we promise like we will. Um, so yeah. Well, we definitely. don't promise. Like if you're, if you're going to give us like Mono's hands of fate, I don't know about that. But <laughs> That's true. I shouldn't make promises. I can't keep. But. But we do, we do take them to heart. Exactly. We, we will seriously <laughs> consider. consider anything. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, but yeah, if you want to, um, Reach out to us or follow us. Yeah. You or can. if you have any thoughts on the episode, let us that know. That was my dog, Wookie. I don't know if you heard his growl. <laughs> a little mad. This is our little grandpa man. I held him a little too tight He's and so he was cute. angry. It's fine. Yeah. So um, also, if you want to support the podcast at all, we would love for you to, you know, post about us on your social media. Tell your friends if they like podcasts or movies or uh, review talking. us on yeah. Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Like, yes. rate us, review us. Rate us, review us. We'd love um, that. You know, put good thoughts in the universe for us. Sacrifice <laughs> something for us. Like, some burn- innocent blood wouldn't hurt. Yeah, you know? like, burned offerings are my preference. Yeah. But, like, if you want to spill, in, uh, not innocent blood, just, like, never mind i don't know where i'm going with this i'm like uh you know what your own blood yeah it's it's it has to be consensual obviously yeah just just burn something for us mm-hmm. we love burning yeah. shit yeah love candles oh we love you guys yeah we love you guys um, too uh yeah sorry. we love you guys and um yeah we'll see you in two weeks we'll see you soon we bye. love you we miss you bye
Music by Gary Argyle. Bisexually Lit is a production of Winterhawk Podcasts. For more information, go to winterhawkpodcasting.com.